there was an energy about people in Vietnam that uh, reminded me very much of, uh, of New York and Hong Kong. That's Ken Atkinson. He's the chairman of Grant Thornton and the British business group, both in Vietnam. And that is what we're talking about today, business and foreign investment in Vietnam. Ken has been in the region for almost four decades, with half that time in Vietnam. So who better to speak with? This is the Emerging Markets Podcast. So, Ken Atkinson, good morning. Uh, Good morning. Let's begin with a bit of an introduction of yourself and how you came to be in Vietnam. I first came out to Asia. I was working for a small London-based bank called Nordic Bank. I decided to leave banking and uh, set up my own business in Asia at that time, focused on mainland China. But in 1989, one of my clients, a European client that I was working with in China, asked me to um, go to Vietnam to do a feasibility study for a hotel development in Hanoi. And uh, I decided that um, at the time that it made more sense for me to start to look at Vietnam as a market, partly because of the size of China and the fact that we were quite a small company. So uh, over two years, I refocused my business to Vietnam and uh, been there ever since, um, affiliated with Grant Thornton in 1994 and became a full member firm in, in 1998. Well, that's an interesting background, Ken. So after your initial foray into the country, what was it about Vietnam that captured your attention and kept you there? Well, first of all, having invested in a business um, it makes it more more uh, compelling to uh, to stay. But I think it's just the tremendous opportunity here, the people, the vibrancy of the place. Even even back then, there was an energy about people in Vietnam that uh, reminded me very much of uh, of New York and Hong Kong, and I just saw the future. Let's start with your perspective on the difference between the north and the south of Vietnam between Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, particularly with respect to perhaps the working culture or the business culture? Uh, Night and day comes to mind. Very, very different. Different levels of, if you like, vibrancy. Uh, Yeah, and and people are just very different. People in the north are are very conservative. Obviously, it is the seat of government, and uh, they take a lot longer to, to build relationships than people in the south who tend to be very commercial. They're more short-term in their thinking in the in the south, and uh, they do think longer-term in the north. So, um, got good friends in in both places. We obviously you have offices in both places, but even when the within the office, you can you know you sense the difference in the culture when you walk into the two offices. Right. So let me ask you then, since you have offices in both cities, let me ask you then about hiring staff in Vietnam. How have you found that process, and is there any difference in the nature of those staff between the, the two cities? Well, at the moment, it's uh, it's quite challenging because there, there are so many new companies setting up, so there's a lot of opportunity for people to move, and Vietnamese generally, certainly in the south, are very ambitious. I think sometimes they want to run before they can, can walk. We do. I've had staff with me for over 20 years and quite a few, 15 and 10 years. So there is also a loyalty. I'd say people in the north are are probably, again, more loyal. Their salary comes uh, probably number four in the the list of things they're looking for, where it's 
probably number three in in Ho Chi Minh City. So uh, yeah, it is generally challenging. So also, you know, the accounting auditing profession is very young. So uh, there's not that huge pool of qualified people. So we take most of our staff we take from university and we train them. Ken, if you can reflect back over the time you've been in Vietnam, what are some of the broader changes you've experienced across this time period? Well, I think just about everything. I mean, infrastructure, of course, is probably the most visible. You know, Vietnam, really, even in 89 when I came, there'd been very little development since the end of the American War. And... uh, didn't have any money, but whereas now the you know the infrastructure, there's been huge investment in, in infrastructure. People have got more experience. Um, a lot of people now have had overseas education, a lot more confident, and uh, we've seen the emergence of the private sector. So before 2000, there wasn't really well, there were no regulations governing private companies. It was all state-owned enterprises. Um, there were, I think. Uh, less than 5,000 private businesses in two, at the end of the 90s. Today, we have almost 600,000 private enterprises registered and a lot of also family businesses, which we would classify as sole traders. do want to talk uh, about infrastructure a little bit more. We'll come to that a bit later. But let's start with sort of general landscape for foreign investment in Vietnam. You've talked there about the sort of rapid growth in private companies in Vietnam, and you, you mentioned sort of there's still a very strong interest uh, for foreign business coming into the country. Primarily, what, some of, what are some of the key issues that foreign investors or foreign businesses looking to either market in Vietnam or to set up operations in Vietnam? What are some of the key issues you see that they should be aware of? In spite of the efforts of the government to make it a lot more user-friendly, if you like, and, and reduce the red tape and bureaucracy, there is still a lot of red tape and, and bureaucracy. So things take a lot longer than you would imagine. So I always say to clients or potential clients, you know, plan what you think and then double the length of time and double the amount of money that it's going to going to cost. So that that leads to frustration. So patience is a huge requirement when trying to, to do business here or, or set up here. But most sectors are, are now open to to foreign investment, although some sectors are still considered to um, to be restricted. And therefore, you need to make sure that if you are not going to go into a, a joint venture with local partners, that uh, the sector is fully open for foreign investment. The things like telecommunications and printing and uh, publishing, the things that you would associate with Communist Party control uh, are still there. Although when you come into Vietnam and walk around or drive around, you'd never imagine that it really was a communist country. Let's just discuss the mechanics of operating in Vietnam or setting up a company in Vietnam. Can a foreigner have a 100% shareholding in a company there? And can you perhaps explain the process of setting up operations in Vietnam? Yeah, so most sectors, um, as I said, it's open to foreign investment and foreign investors can have 100% of, own 100% of the company. So in things like manufacturing, it's quite it's quite straightforward. You need to prepare a feasibility study. You need to fill in the required government documents and file those with the local department of planning and investment. 
and then you'll get your your license or they may come back and ask further questions. So that process is fairly straightforward. Difficulties come with uh, acquisition of land and construction where there's construction involved, although today the best option is an industrial industrial park where the land's already cleared, the title's clear, and um, normally the, the sites are ready to start construction immediately you, you start. Or, in fact, several industrial parks today will have uh, premises to lease available as well. Well, the issue of land titles is quite an interesting one, particularly when you take into account that uh, in neighbouring Cambodia, which I'm sure you're also aware of, land titles are opaque at best. Is the issue as prevalent in Vietnam? Well, land titles in some areas, they're they're not very clear. Um, The whole system of local government is lacks transparency. Um, There's still quite a bit of corruption, although government is is making or tackling quite a few high-profile cases at the moment with the attempt to reduce reduce corruption. But um, land and construction is one of the areas that it's, I say, it's uh, less transparency than, uh, than many others. Uh, so that, that does add to complications. And the government's also very sensitive to site clearance issues. So it tends to take a long time because it's it's a process of, uh, of discussion and consensus and agreeing on the price of land. So, yeah, we've been involved with projects where it's taken seven or eight years to uh, from the outset to getting land cleared and, and ready to start construction. So, you know, in those situations, there's obviously a lot of hidden costs in uh, developing business here. Well, let's consider the landscape for foreign investment and let's look at the last decade or so. Have the changes you've seen on ground been moving in a positive direction and where do you see there is still room for improvement? It is improving. The government and and all the ministries are certainly demonstrating a commitment to, to make it all easier. That doesn't always feed down to local government employees who and most things are dealt with at, at local level. But it's certainly getting better. They're reducing the amount of uh, administration, particularly around tax and customs, to make to make it easier for businesses to to operate. So they see themselves as an as an enabling government, and uh, there have been major improvements. Well, I do want to touch on the anti-corruption campaign a little later as well, because that's a particularly pertinent topic uh, for foreign investors. Though I'd like to ask you firstly about the level of foreign investment coming into Vietnam. I believe in 2018, there was an increase of around 9% to around 19 billion US dollars. Are you aware of the level of UK investment into Vietnam and what are we seeing in that field? So that that figure of 19 billion was actually the amount of capital that was actually remitted into Vietnam. The the new FDI commitments were around 30 billion. The, the big UK investment came in quite early in, in the financial services sector, banking, accounting firms, oil and gas. Several of the, the bigger oil and gas companies have, have since reduced their presence or, or pulled out of Vietnam entirely. But we're starting to see more activity in terms of setting up IT uh, around fintech, around renewable energy, 
so I'd say there's a there's a new wave of foreign investments starting to to come out of the UK or UK um, listed investment funds, um, which is quite encouraging. In fact, I was at lunch today with uh, with our ambassador Gareth Ward, and uh, he was talking about the opportunities for UK companies in the areas of, of artificial intelligence, in uh, smart healthcare, renewable energy, and also in fintech. So, you know, there are new areas that UK companies can focus on, where the investments are you know, smaller than some of the investments that were made initially by the bigger, bigger multinationals. And we're starting to see a, a much better ecosystem for startups and, and innovation. And in those areas, you know, students and graduates are, are very, very trainable and they learn incredibly quickly. I'd like to ask you about how British investment is viewed in Vietnam. How are the British viewed in Vietnam? And I ask this in the context of some countries as foreign investors are not always viewed very favorably. Again, if we look next door in Cambodia, which is a recipient of huge Chinese investment, China and the Chinese are not always viewed favorably in Cambodia. So in that context, how do you believe the Vietnamese view British business and British investment? No, I think they're viewed um, very favourably. I should have said education is also one of the big sectors that uh, there's a lot of attention to by by UK universities in particular. And there are a lot of Vietnamese going to the UK for education. We now have a British university in Vietnam. We have British international schools in Hanoi and and Ho Chi Minh City. So that also helps uh, endear people to British British people and, and British companies. We have a very high-level strategic partnership between government to government, UK and Vietnam, which uh, works extremely well. And uh, there was a big education uh, delegation in the UK this year and also um, a health delegation. So uh, we're very much on the radar and the Vietnamese very, you know, want us to move very quickly, assuming that there, there is a Brexit to actually put in place a a free trade agreement, a direct agreement between the UK and and Vietnam. So, yeah, it's a a very strong relationship. Okay, I just want to follow on from the point that you made about Brexit, and I want to ask you about the level of bilateral trade between the two nations. Are we seeing that on an increase, decrease, or plateauing? And what do you expect to happen once Britain does leave the European Union? Uh, I think that as I say, uh, both governments are, are moving to make sure that uh, we can basically just uh, restamp the EU-Vietnam free trade agreement as the, the UK-Vietnam bilateral trade agreement. So I don't think there's going to be too many issues there. I think uh, Vietnamese exports to the UK are, are probably three times what the, the exports are to to Vietnam uh, from the UK. It's about, I think, I think it's around five billion total um, total foreign trade import export between the two countries, but we're seeing a lot a lot of interest from British companies looking at the market. So, Business Centre, which really has taken over some of the activities of Department of International Trade in terms of uh, OMIS work, is very busy. We're having a, a record number of uh, inquiries and proposals and engagements to to help British companies. One of the sectors you touch on there is fintech, and that's obviously a booming sector around particularly Southeast Asia. Can you speak to any particular British 
projects or British companies which are having some success there in Vietnam? Yes, I think um, well, one that was discussed at lunchtime was uh, Prudential, uh, the insurance company. They, they've actually built a, um, a platform for regarding uh, health issues, um, which is, I think, now being used apparently by the uh, National Health Service in the UK. And uh, they, they want to roll that out both in Vietnam and across ASEAN. So that, that's one good example. Harvey Nash, Nash Tech, they, they employ over a thousand people here now and they're, they're doing a lot in the um, IT development and software development space also. I want to speak about some of the obstacles to Vietnam's growth and development later, though let's come back to the anti-corruption campaign being waged more intensively by the current administration. It is reasonably clear that this is not devoid of political consideration. So my question is, is this an issue which foreign investors ought to pay closer attention to, and how might they mitigate their risks and lower their exposure to this issue? You know, it takes two to tango, so to speak. So I think companies need to be very wary and, uh, you know, need to, I think, behave in, a, in, in the correct way and not get sucked into these situations where people are asking for, for money to speed up processes because once you get onto that, slippery slope it's uh, it's very very hard to to get off it i think the this year january 1st uh, the anti-corruption law in vietnam became effective which actually covers both state-owned companies government employees and private sector so um, that's also supporting um and i think generally vietnamese realize that um, if you are from you know a developed country and or north america that it's very hard for you to to play some of the games that um, some of our Asian neighbours play. Have there been any British businesses that have been caught up in any corruption cases at all in Vietnam? I'm not aware of uh, any British companies that have been caught up in these corruption cases, but I know that there are British companies that have had significant issues around tax and customs and those issues have uh, taken a long time to resolve because they've been unwilling to um, enter into any kind of arrangements that would be considered to be less than transparent. Just following on from that, in January this year, the new cybersecurity laws came into effect, which themselves are rather draconian. And over the past couple of years, there certainly have been numerous media reports about activists which have been arrested and sentenced stemming from activity online, such as Facebook. In that respect, what sort of advice does the British business group provide to uh, businesses coming into Vietnam? I mean, generally, we don't have those kind of problems. I think, obviously, the government is sensitive to being attacked publicly. They're very sensitive to demonstrations and uh, basically you know they want to keep public order and public security so they will move very quickly if there are gatherings as they were around the cyber security regulations and the the riots that we had a few years ago unfortunately around the south china sea issues so they move and 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 they do behave in quite draconian ways there's no no finesse about it at all 
but uh, they're learning. And uh, again, it's an education thing on how to deal with these situations. But anybody that um, goes online or publishes articles or puts things on Facebook, which are openly critical of the government, then they're really asking for trouble. Let me ask you a little on domestic politics. So the president had a recent, very sparsely reported hospital visit, and it's still rather unclear as to the nature of his medical condition. Uh, Many of the party leadership are in their 60s, and many of those will be beyond 65 by the time of the next National Congress in 2021. Uh, So the issue of succession in the party is timely. Uh, Do you have any insights here? Again, that's something that tends to discussions that tend to be reserved for Vietnamese. Uh, People say to me, you know, you've been in Vietnam nearly 30 years, you must know everything there is to know. And I say, no, I know as much as my Vietnamese friends want me to know. And uh, they don't like to show anything where there is uh, dissent or lack of consensus to to foreigners. So, but uh, having said that, I think the, the government's very stable we don't have any concerns at all about um, continued political stability. Um, transition takes place. It's very, it's very organised as it as it was last time. Yes, the president uh, has recently had a, a bit of Ill, Ill health, but he's back at work. And uh, I saw saw him on TV a couple of nights ago, and uh, he's looking looking very well. The prime minister's still of an age where he he could continue, but there are you know several other ministers um, who are younger or similar age that um, certainly would be um, would be able to step into that role. So I don't have any concerns about the, uh, about the stability of the government moving forward. It's a very stable country and it's a very safe country. So the next key issue is around commercial risks and particularly around the rule of law and the perception of fairness within the system as it pertains to business disputes. Uh, Ken, what comment can you make on the landscape as you have seen it over the years? Obviously, it varies sector to sector, but if you are trying to... So I was talking to somebody the other day who had tried to set up a trading business and trading in commodities that uh, are considered to be the domain of, of, of Vietnamese business, for example, rice. And I think if you start to get into trading and um, commodity trading, export of, of those types of commodities that, as I say, are considered to be the domain of the Vietnamese, then you you might starting to find that you have problems and the kind of problems that you don't really want to have. So I think you've got to be quite careful when you, you look at what kind of business you're going to go into in Vietnam. The court system is, is is still we recommend avoiding court systems and basically having arbitration in, in contracts there is arbitration in Vietnam it does not seem to be overly biased to Vietnamese parties but Vietnamese also accept arbitration in places like Singapore which obviously would be a preference regulations generally are they're not very clear all the time regulations are drafted and there's always areas that are grey and open to interpretation, and therefore also got to be careful with those situations. And you know, very often, for example, with the tax department, you'll get a different ruling on exactly the same situation, a different ruling in Hanoi to to one you would get in Ho Chi Minh City. So 
even the uh, the various government departments have different interpretations. Right, that's very interesting. So, in your experience, then, Ken, would you say it is prudent or necessary to engage a local partner if you're establishing some sort of operations there in Vietnam? My experience is that joint ventures normally end up being two people sharing the same bed with different dreams. And it's not something we recommend unless it's absolutely necessary to um, to get licensed. The Vietnamese generally, obviously, one shouldn't generalize, but we do. They do have a, a different kind of view on, on business ethics to, to say what we have from the UK. But that's not to say there aren't good partners. I mean, you know, one of the most successful joint ventures in Vietnam has been the, the Coates, the Thread People, Coates um, Fong Fu joint venture which has been going for 27 years. I think it was largely successful in the early days because they didn't have a foreigner running it, but um, had a local running it. Uh, but that, that's that been extremely successful. So there are cases where joint ventures do work, but the, the majority in, in our experience are tend to be problematic. So one of the major global issues at present is, of course, the US-China trade war and the opportunities that may present for Southeast Asian countries, such as Vietnam. There have been reports of some manufacturing firms already shifting operations into Vietnam. Is that something you're seeing on the ground in any volume? Well, there's a number of things happening. You know, for many years, people had what they called a China plus one policy. But we've seen over the last few years that, you know, the China plus one has been uh, reducing to just the one, Vietnam. And I think the trade tensions between the US and, and China have just accelerated a move of manufacturers out of China into Vietnam. And then the other thing that's been going on is people have been kind of reallocating their production. So, you know, they, they've been moving their, their US production from China to Vietnam and moving their European production to China from Vietnam. So not necessarily investing in, in, in new production capacity in Vietnam, but uh, reallocating the uh, where, where those goods are actually going. Ken, I want to ask you about infrastructure development in Vietnam. You mentioned earlier that it was one of the most visible changes on the ground over the years, yet landing in Ho Chi Minh City, one will certainly witness concerning traffic congestion, which is bound to worsen over the next five years as more motorbikes convert to cars. Secondly, of course, is power generation, where Vietnam is struggling to keep up with increasing demand. So is enough being done by the government in the various levels to address these concerns? Generally speaking, infrastructure is a problem, although it is getting, it's getting a lot better. And government has now accepted the need to, you know, to try and encourage and create a better regulatory environment for BBP. So in terms of transport, yes, I mean, there are 12 local party secretaries a few weeks ago said that uh, their estimate is that there are 13 million people living in, in Ho Chi Minh City now. And uh, I think there are eight and a half million motorcycles at, at the last count, plus uh, well over a million cars now. So that is an issue and we're not going to have our first MTR or, or, or Metro line until at least till first quarter of 2021 when they expect to uh, to have trials running. So it's going to be a, a, it's a problem that's going to grow rather than get less, although 
you know, where they are constructing new bridges uh, across the river into uh, to Tiananmen District 2, which will help, I think, some of the some of the traffic congestion. But it's, it's, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. I think waste management is, is another very critical area, but uh, there is some kind of uh, NC, which is uh, Siam Cement, uh, uh, set up a, a waste to energy plant or project, which has been very, very successful. So they're taking all kinds of waste and um, compacting it and then burning it in their cement furnaces. And there's, as I say, there's been a, a lot of investment recently into into solar because the government uh, gave an incentive feed-in tariff, which um, is shortly uh, about to expire. So there's a lot of projects that uh, are coming on stream before the end of end of June. And they've also been quite successful in persuading people to develop rooftop solar. So a lot of households are, are moving to, to rooftop solar. So there are, you know, there's encouraging things going on. But uh, the major concern is still that unless there are major plants um, set up um, solar or wind, there are going to be critical, critical shortages of, of energy potentially uh, over the next two to three years. You've also spoken about this waste management issue with particular regard to Vietnam's southern tourism zones, such as Phu Quoc Island. Can you expand a little bit more on that? I think we're in the awareness stage. Um, so that you take Phu Quoc, there, there's no solid waste um, treatment plant in Phu Quoc. So that is causing challenges. I think there's probably another 10,000 hotel rooms, or actually now Vincom have just announced another 10,000 to support their casino. So there's probably another 20,000 hotel rooms to uh, to be built or, or to come on, on stream in the, on the island. So, yes, so you've got the sustainability and the environmental issues. You've also got an airport issue because the airport design capacity is, is 2.5 million. And last year they had, I think it was 3.3 million people through the airport. So um, there's got to be a, a major expansion of, of, of the airport. Uh, and that applies also to several other major destinations in, in Vietnam, including uh, including Ho Chi Minh City. But uh, I, I think the environmental sustainability is, is one of the, the key issues, and that's not limited to, to Phu Quoc either. So that's very poor. I mean, it's the result of really very poor poor planning and and lack of state budget for those kind of projects. Just a couple more questions to wind up, Ken. Firstly, property development and real estate in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. Vietnam, like many of the developing countries in the region, has surely seen considerable urbanisation over the decades, as people, of course, move to the cities to find work. What insight can you share on the property and real estate sector there? Okay, so yes, there has been quite a lot of urbanisation and people moving into into the cities. They, they, these tend to be more, without being rude, low-end workers, uh, a lot of them, who are coming in just to, to find jobs and moving off uh, off farming and agricultural jobs. And they're, they're tending to, to live in dormitories that are, that are being built by, by factories or by private individuals. But there's been massive development in residential at the mid to high end so it's 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 aiming at the growing middle class and and the upper class in vietnam so we've seen 
massive developments in Ho Chi Minh City, like the Bencom Central Park, about 11,000 residential units. They're doing at the other end of the same street. They're doing uh, uh, Golden River, which is going to be about another 11,000 residential residential units. And by and large, they're they're selling. But the, what we're seeing is that people are prepared to pay much higher prices. So particularly um, those that are aimed at attracting foreigners, for example, Chinese, where we're seeing prices of now of ten to twelve thousand dollars a square meter, which, to be honest, I think is quite ridiculous. But um, people are are paying those those prices. But you know, the average um, uh, middle to high end apartments you, you you can buy in District Two for two and a half, three thousand dollars a square meter. So, and I think you know the feeling is that the the middle class is growing quickly enough to uh, to absorb a lot of this new supply coming onto onto the market but uh, there are two schools of thought on it that there will be an oversupply or, or it is going to be absorbed but uh, depends who you talk to so do you think the property developments are structured toward Vietnamese or a growing Vietnamese middle class or are they more structured toward foreign buyers uh, I think there's more of a focus on uh, of low income, let's say low income housing. So the, we're we're seeing more of that certainly in the outer lying districts of, of Ho Chi Minh. But as I say, with the, with the growing middle class and uh, you know average per capita incomes rising significantly, and and there's a lot of people in Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi that are well above the average per capita income. And generally speaking, mortgages are becoming more available, uh, and people are more inclined to or willing to borrow, uh, which they weren't a few years ago, particularly if they if they're buy to live. So I think the as I say, the consensus is that the middle class is growing so rapidly and incomes are growing so rapidly that uh, the the new new supply will be will be absorbed. Uh, and particularly as the, quite a lot of projects have been slowed down by uh, investigation by the government into into the land acquisition process. So that that has helped take some of the heat out of the market. To close up our interview, Ken, I want to zoom out and look at Vietnam's position within ASEAN. As you've talked about today, a great deal has changed and continues to change within the country. Vietnam has seen record GDP growth rates over the past two decades. So from your perspective, what is Vietnam's position moving forward within the region and within ASEAN? So I think, well, the government's objective is to become one of the top five countries in, in ASEAN, and they consider themselves to be a, a moderate voice, uh, a moderating influence on ASEAN. They do want to play a, a key role in, in ASEAN. You know, that all is, is very positive. They obviously, in comparison to, to places like Singapore, Malaysia, they do have quite a long way to go. But, you know, when we compare to some of our other neighbours like Philippines or Indonesia or even Thailand, we, you know, we are, we are right up there, uh, if, not, if not better. So that was my conversation with Ken Atkinson, chairman of the British Business Group and Grant Thornton in Vietnam. I want to thank Ken for joining me and sharing his knowledge and insight. If you want to know more about investing in Vietnam, just reach out. If you have enjoyed this production, stay tuned for the next interview.